a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to this program, Among Guan Beijing. Millions of American voters cast their ballots in the U.S. midterm elections on Tuesday, and data show that these midterm elections are on track to be the most expensive ever, while high inflation in the U.S. has hiked up the cost of living for average Americans. How does the election mirror the partisan divide and chaos in American society, and what are the implications for the presidential election in 2024 and America's foreign policy? We begin that with our correspondent Nathan King in Washington D.C. Well, it was predicted as a red wave to begin with, and then became a red ripple as results came in, and may end up being a red puddle. We still don't know the full control or uh, uh, lack of it for the Republicans when it comes to House of Representatives or the Senate. The night started so well for Republicans, as it often does. In Florida, Ron DeSantis, the governor, really romping home, as did Marco Rubio, the sitting senator. Let's listen to Ron DeSantis. We've accomplished more than anybody thought possible four years ago, but we've got so much more to do, and I have only begun to fight. There was a hint there that he might have his eye on a bigger prize. That could be the presidency of the United States. He would have to perhapsly challenge Donald Trump, who didn't have a very good night. A lot of his candidates、uh, that he put up for at least back for the big positions didn't make it, including Dr. Oz, the TV doctor in Pennsylvania, in a key Senate race, which ended up going for the Democrats. Any pickup for them? Let's listen to the winner、uh, in that race. I'm proud of what we ran on: protecting a woman's right to choose, raising our minimum wage. It was a real night of not success for Democrats, but holding the wall. Normally, you can lose 20, 30, 40 seats in a midterm election if you're the incumbent power. Well, Joe Biden won't have lost that many or his Democratic Party, and there were some firsts as well, including the first black governor of Maryland, a former slavery state, and the first female LGBTQ governor in the state of Massachusetts. There were some key successes in some very, very difficult House races for Democrats too in Virginia, out in the Midwest, but still all to play for. It will come down to Senate races、uh, for control of the Senate in Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. Control of Congress behind me, and the deeply divided nation will continue to argue with itself for days, weeks, and months to come. The real question, though, is what happens to Donald Trump and what happens to Joe Biden. A lot of people are edging Joe Biden away from running for a second term. Well, he's got good reasons to run again. As for Donald Trump, he looks less like the future of the Republican Party than Ron DeSantis at the moment does in Florida. It will be intense jockeying for position as the U.S. election machine winds up for the presidential races in two years' time. Nathan King, CGTN. Outside the U.S. Congress. For more discussions, I'm joined today in Virginia by Bill Schneider, Professor of Policy, Government, and International Affairs at George Mason University. In Philadelphia, we have Brendan Blackburn Dwyer, founder of Grasshopper Strategies. And in Washington D.C., we have Brittany Lee Lewis, African American, 20th Century History Professor at George Washington University.、Uh, welcome to all of you to our program on CGTN.、Uh, let me start with you, Brittany. What's at stake? For this U.S. midterm elections, 
what what is what is not at stake, right? I mean, I think we're looking at the future of potential violence, depending on who is becoming elected. We know that, unfortunately, um, the big lie is still around and well, right? We know that there are many election deniers out there um, who are not only running for political office, but also those who are working the polls. And they've made it very clear that, um, unfortunately, if they don't win, um, they're certainly going to question fraud. Um, and I do fear that we could see something potential to the January 6th uprising that we saw. Um, but in addition to that, you know, we have abortion, you know, on the ballot. We certainly have the economy on the ballot. Um, folks are concerned, you know, Biden isn't polling very well at all. Um, yeah. So there's several things that we need to be watching out for at this point. And talking about abortion, people would have assumed that the Democrats and uh, parts of the liberal constituents would come up against the Roe v. Wade uh, which was a big, uh, you know, decision by the Supreme Court of the United States not so long ago. But it seems that it's still very hard to defy gravity. That is the other party than the sitting president's party wins. I think when it comes to these issues in general, while I think it's very clear that things like the economy, for example, are extremely bipartisan, um, we see what issues um, voters value really break down around party lines. So, for example, the Democrats, obviously, abortion is really going to be at the forefront of what they care about. And we see that there are numerous Democratic voters who are care who care and are voting right according to um, their women's bodies and 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 voting um, to take back control in that way but we know in terms of republicans you know that's just not at the top of the list for them right so they're more so concerned with immigration violent crime uh, so i think it's important for us to think about that breakdown and also to think about abortion breakdown along the lines of gender so obviously um, and unfortunately um, that's more of an issue on the forefront of, for for women voters whereas not so much for their male counterparts mm -hmm. Um, uh, Brendan, um, what do you think when it comes to the issues? Is this election more about kitchen table issues or more about values? I'd say it's about power. Uh, I think it's about power to make those decisions, right? So I think that there, there are a number of very easily to name, uh, Professor Lewis, Professor Schneider have both named them in various different ways here, right? The economy, inflation specifically, right? Um, you know, we're, we're teetering theoretically near the edge of a recession, but you know, two out of 10 Americans say the economy is doing great. Um, you know, that's not usually what you hear when you're teetering near it. But, you know, six out of 10 Americans say it's doing absolutely terrible, right? And that's really about the value of money seemingly depreciating. And that's inflation specific. So the economy is driving this. That plus the normal weight of, you know, the sitting president, I think, delivers this as a table is set for the Republicans to do very well in this thing. But the bigger picture picture issues are simply power, whether it's power to choose uh, the right. Supreme Court justices, whether it's power to stop any Democratic agenda, whether it's power to enforce uh, a certain political agenda on women's bodies. You know, the Herschel Walker election in Georgia, right? This is a senator that in any time in recent American history, this person would have stepped down. The Republican Party would have forced him out of being the nominee five months ago. This is a person that instead of running away from their entire party, ran to, embraced, supported, spent money, spent time, spent energy. And that's simply about power. They don't care about Herschel Walker. They care yeah. about one more seat in the Senate. And that's all the Republican Party wants right now. If you look down the ticket, it's about who runs the next elections. That's probably the most concerning one. That's not getting enough. 300 Republican candidates 
are big lie supporters. They do not believe in the 2020 election results. And many of them will be in position for the 2024 election to determine how votes are counted, how elections are run. And that's really what this is about. Power now, power in 2024, and power to dictate everything going down the road. Bill, agree or disagree? It's about power. I certainly agree. I thought that was very eloquent. Uh, The Republican Party has been taken over by the radical right. The radical right has been around for 200 years in American politics. I mean, we had various manifestations from McCarthyism all the way back to the anti-Masons in the early 20th century, the anti-Irish. There's always been a radical right in the United States, but they've taken over a political party. And one more thing, they have been to the presidency. They have won the presidency. That's what Trump did. Trump carried them to victory in 2016. They won the White House. Then they got turned out, which they claim was only because of fraud. They were furious. They were furious and continue to be furious about losing the 2020 election. And they are determined to get that power back. That's a big change in American politics. Democrats are trying to make an issue of Republican extremism, but I'm not sure they're succeeding. Talking about uh, the radical right, um, I certainly want to talk about Trump. He's been active. Um, He could very well run in 2024, in his own words. Uh, What does that say about Trump's clout in the GOP right now and the chances of his contesting in presidential elections in 2024, Bill? Oh, Trump is apparently determined to run. He's probably going to declare sometime next week that he's a candidate. But actually, his image is not very good. He is, in one word, divisive. Americans associate him with tearing the country apart. And that's one of the things they're worried about right now. Can't we find some heroic figure like Dwight Eisenhower who can bring the country together? Biden promised to do that. When I go around the country talking to voters and attending focus groups, they all have the same word for Joe Biden. Weak. He's a weak president. He can't hold the country together. Trump tears the country apart. So you've got two unpopular figures at the top at the peak of American politics. Uh, If Trump runs, I think he will run for the Republican nomination. He'll have competition. It's already started between him and the newly reelected governor of Florida. Trump claims he gets credit for electing DeSantis. He might claim credit for that, but he didn't reelect DeSantis, which is what happened today in Florida. Um, uh, Professor Lewis, as divisive a figure Donald Trump may have been, um, he's still supported by many and many uh, GOP, many GOPs just conform to the reality that uh, he's a big shot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just eloquently put. I mean, I, I think one thing that is unfortunate is that even if Donald Trump is not here to stay, one thing that none of us can deny is that Trump's hold on U.S. politics and the Republican Party is really here to stay in more ways than one. Um, you know, regardless of what happens to Donald Trump, because it is clear he is a very divisive figure, right? Um, but Trumpism has so much power. And I think that his favor um, and many of those who are emulating his brand of this kind of hard right populism, um, including his doubts about the integrity of the elections, which we see, um, has become a really successful and widespread tactic among many candidates looking to secure these primary wins. I mean, we saw Cheney ousted. Um, We've seen a couple of different folks who eventually who had voted to impeach Trump ousted. Uh, He continues to have quite a bit of power, quite quite a bit of sway over the Republican Republican Party and has obviously um, pushed the party completely far right. What about on the Democratic side? Who could be contesting the the Republicans in the 2024 elections? Well, I can try to answer that. Most Democrats don't want to see Joe Biden run for re-election. Why? They think he's too old. 
He'll be 82 years old in 2024, and they don't want him to run again. Who else is there? If Joe Biden does not run for re-election in 2024, I think the Democrats will nominate Kamala Harris. When a president doesn't run for re-election or can't run uh, because he's termed out or too old or unwell, the party almost always nominates the vice president. That would be like uh, Richard Nixon after Eisenhower, Hubert Humphrey after Lyndon Johnson, Al Gore after Bill Clinton, Joe Biden after Barack Obama. The vice president always has a leg up and progressives in the Democratic Party will not be told you can't nominate Kamala Harris. They'll say, wait a minute, she's black. She's a woman. She's vice president. She's our person. She's our candidate. And they will stand behind her. Brittany, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that it would um, really break precedent to essentially not support, like if we're not going to support Biden, to not have Kamala as a front runner. I think that Black voters obviously um, were key to Biden's win in 2020 primaries. But I think, you know, there is questions in terms of like, you know, a race without him. But I think that she would be the next best pick. She is a woman of color. Um, she is a woman. And I do think she would strongly be supported. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think that there's also something to be said about Pete Buttigieg. Um, you know, as a transportation secretary, he he really leads Harris in, in, in some ways. I think he's better able to drive a message and he ran a better 2020 campaign. I also think he's competitive with her in the polls, um, despite her larger platform. Um, but that's just me. We'll see what happens. <laughs> We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Bonjour, comment allez-vous? Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn, the 26th United Nations Climate. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Loved Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on the major podcast platforms. Why we love Dun Quang? You will have your answers. Focus, focus on what's relevant in China and the world. Bridge the bridge the gap between what you know and what you want to know. This is the hub. I think the climate's extremely polarizing um, across the board. It's. Again, it's kind of scary where we stand. There are sides of the Republicans that I agree with and disagree with, and there are sides of the Democrats that I agree and disagree with. They are so annoying, so I opt out, and then another one comes, and hey, vote for this Democratic person, or da 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 it's just bull****. I'm tired of the Texas. I'm tired of the commercials, too. I like Trump a lot, but Trump is in the past. Brandon, let's say if uh, the Republicans regain a majority of both chambers of Congress, what would that mean for the 2024 presidential election? 
more of the same, honestly. I, you know, Republicans gaining control will be seen as a win. Trump will claim uh, responsibility for it. Number of other Republicans, they'll claim that it's a referendum on Biden, which, which I want to point out that it's the irony of anybody that's talking about this being an election about Biden. You know, after you talk about the economy and after you talk about abortion and after you talk about Trump and after you talk about DeSantis, you're like, oh, right, maybe we should talk about the sitting president of the United States and what a role he's playing. But no one's talking about it. I mean, everyone, I think at this point is assuming he's not the candidate in 2024. So the midterms are largely going to be dismissed as a referendum on that Democratic candidate. And everyone's going to be saying they're going to be running against the current policies. Um, if the Republicans control it, I, I think it means that we go into two years of effectively lockdown on any sort of policy progression. I think that was going to happen anyway. You want to talk about, you know, far right Republicans are already taken to the streets because they're angry at Democrats. Just wait until they're taken to the streets because they're angry at other Republicans. Um, it's not going to go well. Um, the problem for the Democrats is how do they respond to that, right? You know, a lot of people believe it is a foregone conclusion that Biden is not going to run. Um, and if he does, he's going to be an afterthought. If he doesn't run, I think the vice president Harris is, a, is an excellent candidate. And Pete Buttigieg, both are sort of continuing the tradition of the of the establishment, picking a sort of a successor. But Kamala Harris wasn't a great candidate in 2020. I, I, I have to say her candidacy just did not turn out the way I expected. And she was kind of buoyed being brought back onto the ticket. Pete Buttigieg, I think, was a much better candidate, but I don't think has the national ability. I think the Democrats are going to have to look outside of that at somebody like Gavin Newsom uh, out of California, um, who's already effectively running a shadow campaign against DeSantis for national influence right now with, with ads back and forth. And so you're going to see the Republicans tearing each other apart, but we could end up with Democrats basically doing the same thing. So we're going to have a repeat of the 2020 election where everybody's tearing everybody apart for 18 months before we even get to the general election. And all Americans are just going to go, I'm so angry. I want somebody that's going to tell me it's all going to be better. And I need a strong leader. And that's going to benefit the Republicans. Bill, it looks to me that U.S. foreign policy has been like a pendulum swinging back and forth between isolationism and expansionism, right? Are we going to see any sort or any hint of expansionism again? You know, think about the military industrial complex, uh, among other things. I don't think so. Uh, remember that the, the condition from American foreign policy for the last 50 years has primarily been the Cold War, which ended in 1991. We are in a post-Cold War period right now. And that is why isolationism is suddenly coming back, because there's no Cold War. There is no Cold War. But it's starting war. a new uh, so-called Cold War with China, no? Well, I don't. I wouldn't say that. It's not a military war. There's an economic war with China. And there's a lot Technology of Technology war and trade war. Yeah, there's a lot of economic competition. I mean, the hostility to China is very great among Republicans, and we're going to see that if they take over Congress. Um, Professor Lewis, what do you think about the possible direction of U.S. foreign policy um, should the GOP regain at least uh, one chamber of the Congress? Yeah, you know, I think what's really interesting about um, like GOP policy, I think so much of it domestically and internationally is empty rhetoric. And what do I mean by that? So I think that the GOP has always needed a scapegoat, has always needed someone to drive, especially the, the major like populist base, the working class, the white working class, to be angry at someone um, for the financial realities, the economic realities of the country. And I oftentimes that's that that is immigrants, that looks like China, that looks like Russia, when the reality is, even if we're looking at, let's say, for example, 
you know, domestic jobs, right? We know that the bulk of the capitalists, the ones who are making the bulk of the money, right, here in the United States that are running these corporations, these companies, down to Donald Trump, you know, is outsourcing his products, you know, overseas, many of which of those things were being made in China. So I think it's a lot of the times really empty rhetoric. But at the end of the day, capitalism is about making money. It's how am I going to get the most money possible? And a lot of that times that doesn't look like paying the actual legislated minimum wage or paying workers fair in the United States. So it's not, you know, and, and I think what, what the GOP has done in excellent job at doing is saying, you know, it's the other black and brown people, you know, your U.S. American neighbors who are the problem, who, who, who are the problem, or it's the immigrants, you know, from the global south, or it's China, or if it's Russia, these are your enemies, when the reality is there's clearly an economic division, right? There's, there's a, there's a socioeconomic division here in the United States, and that has to do, you know, really around the capitalist class and the working class in America. Mm. And I, I would remind you that the white working class, which used to be solidly democratic in the 30s under Franklin mm -hmm. Roosevelt, has now become overwhelmingly Republican. That's the biggest change in American politics. Basically, surveys define them as whites without a college degree. And you find those people everywhere. Fair enough. Brandon, uh, you were in China for, for a long, long time. I watch your show. Uh, give us your take on, you know, the possible direction of China-U.S. relations. Uh, is it dead set in Washington to contain, uh, you know, a rising China, although Washington stopped short of calling it containment? I think there's an opportunity with the next two years under President Biden to separate the China relationship back into its many disparate pieces. Um, I think that something that harmed uh, the evolution of the relationship under President Trump was that we really it became one thing. Everything was containment, right? It was a it was it was a, a misunderstanding that every economic decision felt like it was also a military decision, felt like it was also a political decision, felt like it was also a security decision. I think that there is a lot of legitimate concern on all sides uh, about um, spheres of military influence. I think that there are lots of legitimate concerns about spheres of political influence within the regions. Um, and I think that there are legitimate debates about different economic policies on both sides. But it's going to be more helpful if these debates can be held sort of going back to multi-track conversation. And weirdly, a lame duck President Biden might be the best person positioned to actually try to return that conversation to some sort of um, broader spectrum. Bill, what do you think about the prospect of U.S.-China relations? I don't think they look good with the Republican Congress. Republicans are heavily critical of China. As I mentioned, they're constantly looking for evidence that China deliberately created and spread the COVID uh, disease. I mean, this is kind of crazy, but they do believe that, uh, that it started in a Chinese laboratory. There's hostility to China. Some of it is residual anti-communism. It's a communist country, and there's still a lot of anti-communism in the United States, particularly among Republicans. Uh, and they want to make a statement in opposition to the Democrats. I think Biden is going to have a very, very tough time on the issue of China uh, because Republicans are going to demand a sort of non-cooperation. They see China as a hostile and threatening power much more than Democrats do. Last time I checked, according to 538, um, Biden's approval rating was as low as 39%, the lowest in recent memory. He's seen as weak, and he also has failed to bring the country together, which is what he promised to do. It he's been an ineffective president. Weak, weak, weak. Remember Clinton's statement, strong and wrong beats weak and right. That's why Biden is suffering. Brady, what do you think? 
So I think the main issue that he's struggling, I, I do agree that it has to do with his just overall appearance in terms of being weak. And I think we're talking about messaging as well as physically due to his age, due to the constant calls that he has dementia, that he's intellectually declining. But I also think there's something obviously to do with the economy. I think at the end of the day, people are struggling to put food on the table. They're struggling at the gas pump. They're struggling for basic needs. And at the end of the day, I don't think people really care what's causing that, whether that be inflation, whether that be excess profits for major corporations right, who are using inflation and the, and the war overseas as the reason why they're increasing profits or increasing um, prices, excuse me. But I think at the end of the day, regardless of what's causing it, people just see that they cannot afford to live. You know, wages are still way below the inflation rates and people are struggling. And at the end of the day, you know, people are going to look for a way out and they're going to blame Biden for that. Yeah. Brendan? I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think you have a couple of pieces that, that wrap all this together, right? You have a percentage of the country that is more, you know, baked in, in, you know, baked in the belief that he is not president, right? You have that chunk of the country. You have probably another 30% of people that are died in the wool Republicans and just get, they've learned to disapprove, right? They, they've learned over the last 10 years to no longer separate um, an, a question about your presidency from your partisanship, right? It used to be that you could have a highly approved president or you could have somebody in the 50, 50, 55. You say, yeah, I approve the job they're doing. Would I vote for him? No, that used to be a separate topic. Now, if you're asking somebody to approve of them, they immediately go, no, but I'm not going to vote for him. So I'm going to say no. And then you have a number of Democrats that I think are disaffected, you know, a very progressive wing uh, of the Democratic Party that are wildly disappointed from Biden since before he got the nomination and they don't think that he's doing much. And so they want somebody that's more of a firebrand. And it all comes down to perception. President Trump, one of the things he did from communication is he taught the country to believe that presidents speak every minute of the day. President Biden's not that guy. He's a throwback. He's a throwback to the Biden era. He's a throwback to the Reagan era. And this isn't just an age thing. This is a style thing. This is even before Obama. Right. He would do he wants a presidency that he does a once a week speech that he's able to go out and have one policy projection that he's really going to make a priority for everyone and that he can sort of build momentum for. And we live in a world where we need a presidency to, you know, President Trump taught us to expect somebody to tout their wins every second of every day. So even when President Biden wins, he doesn't spend the next two weeks telling everyone he won. And so no one remembers that he won. And so even when he wins, he doesn't get credit for it because he doesn't self-promote to the point of being a huckster. And so the country is programmed either to dislike him on site or is programmed to expect a communication style that he is never going to give. And that all adds up to a presidency that no matter what he does policy-wise, he's going to be seen as weak and effectively probably one way or the other, one-term president. Guys, thank you so much for your insight. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for the moment. Professor Lewis, Professor Schneider, and Brandon, thank you all so very much. Come back again, please. Sure. Okay. And that will do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our news coverage continues on CGTN. Bye and take care. <laughs>